2: Before we get to today's Spirit in Action guest, I have some sad news. My heart goes out to David Huber, the president of Northern Spirit Radio's Board of Directors, and to all the folks at Plymouth UCC, where David is pastor. There was a fire there this past week, and a majority of the church structure burned down. It was a beautiful building and home for his congregation and a daunting challenge to respond to. Please send your prayers and support in the direction of Plymouth UCC here in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. David is more than busy enough dealing with the fire, and the Northern Spirit Radio Board is also scrambling, because our October 15th fundraiser was scheduled to be held at Plymouth. So, stay tuned as we scope out another site for our extravaganza, called a Heartland Potluck of Community Voices and Music. Among the voices will be some real change agents and forces for our politics of honesty and integrity. Mike McCabe of Blue Jeans Nation and Matt Rothschild, who edited the Progressive magazine for many years, will be there. They'll be speaking at 6 p.m. on the 15th, just as we're serving gourmet locally made pizza. And by the time we finish at 9 p.m., we're going to hear from eight different musicians. Ken Longquist of Madison, Wisconsin, and Squirrel Talk of Eau Claire, both of those in person, with the other six musicians remoting in for their contributions to the event, folks like Cy Khan, Peter Alsop, and Magic Mama. There are some great door prizes also, but mainly there are great folks coming together for a great cause. Get more info and RSVP on the nordenspiritradio.org website and join us if you can. Remote donations are always welcome too. Here's hoping we see you on October 15th. Right now, let's sit down and visit with Paula Palmer. She hails from next door to Boulder, Colorado, and she comes bearing the fruit of a concern. She's been involved with advocacy in partnership with Native Americans for many years, and with a kind of truth and reconciliation effort in recent years, related to the painful contributions to Native history by Quakers and other religious groups in heading the Indian boarding schools. Paula is a sociologist, but this is a concern of the heart and spirit and of reconciliation, and an attempt to move us all toward right relationship. She's traveling right now, sharing the story, so Paula Palmer joins us by phone from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Paula, thank you so much for joining me for Spirit in Action.
3: Well, I'm very happy to do this, Mark. Good morning.
2: And as I said, you're far away from Boulder right now, sharing your message in Milwaukee. How long is this outing for?
3: This is about a 10-day trip, and I'm about two-thirds of the way through it. I am in Milwaukee right now and going to be doing a couple more workshops here before I head home.
2: And what are the workshops you're doing and with what groups?
3: Last night I was with the Methodists at the Central United Methodist Church in Milwaukee, And tomorrow I'm going to be with the Sisters of Our Divine Savior, also in Milwaukee. I'm giving workshops that are called Roots of Injustice, Seeds of Change Toward Right Relationship with Native Peoples. And these are experiential workshops that I've been offering all over the country for about the last four years in collaboration with Native American facilitators. This trip to Wisconsin has taken me up to Oshkosh and Ripon and Nina and now back to Milwaukee.
2: And you've been meeting with some Quaker groups because you're Quaker, but there's other groups. uh, You mentioned evidently some Catholic folks you're meeting with.
3: Yes, the workshop tomorrow is with the Salvatorian Sisters, and the workshop is really designed for all church denominations, and also for colleges and universities. Here in Wisconsin, I gave workshops and talks at Ripon College and also at Marquette University. We do this work in religious context and also in secular context.
2: So let's get an overview. I think there's a history piece that most people are most likely unaware of and that is our relationships with the indigenous people who were on this continent before the Europeans arrived and started moving across the nation. Could you give the thumbnail sketch of those relationships overall leading up to the time of the Indian boarding schools?
3: Well, um, (laughs) that's a very broad brush, of course, but the work that we do looks at what are the roots of injustice suffered by Native peoples on this continent, And actually around the world. And we find those roots in the doctrine of discovery, which it emanated from papal bulls that were decreed by popes in the 1400s and authorized Portuguese and Spanish, initially, explorers to go out around what they called the New World and establish colonies. It declared that in places where no Christians lived, that these, quote, discoverers were authorized to claim that land for their countries, for Portugal or Spain initially, and then later for all of the monarchies of Europe and England, and to enslave or kill indigenous peoples who were living there. So starting in the mid-15th century, the popes and monarchs of Europe were engaged in this project of exploration and claiming of lands that they considered to be null, in other words, unoccupied or unoccupied by Christians. So this doctrine of discovery justified the enslavement and genocide, ultimately, of indigenous populations in all of the worlds that the European nations attempted to colonize. So that's where we start. We start with the roots of injustice, and we see them in this perversion of Christianity, I would say, and the power ambitions, the domination ambitions of the monarchy in Europe. What we've learned from researchers like Stephen Newcomb, an indigenous man who has done a great deal of work on this topic, is that our legal systems today continue to reflect that domination idea and justification. And indigenous people all around the world are telling us that until we understand the mechanisms that are the source of the violation of the rights of indigenous peoples, we're not going to be able to address the contemporary problems that we see in indigenous communities. We have to go to the root of this. So... In our workshops, we lay out how the Doctrine of Discovery has driven the colonization of North America and the systematic violation of the rights of the indigenous peoples here. Then we look at some recent trends both in the human rights movements and sovereignty movements of the indigenous people themselves and of organizations like the United Nations that in 2007 approved the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. This United Nations Declaration is the document that is used now around the world setting the minimum standards for recognition of the rights of indigenous peoples. And these, of course, are inalienable rights. These are the rights that indigenous peoples always have had, and that only very lately now, with the passage of the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, only very lately are these rights recognized throughout the world. And now we need to make them real. Now we need to all, within our legal systems and social systems and educational systems, now we need to all be implementing the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, and that is going to require in our Country, some changes in our legal structure, and changes in our mindsets. So this work that I am doing in collaboration with Native American educators is really aimed at the mindsets, all of our mindsets. So as I said, we offer the work in churches and in colleges and universities, and we're also doing this work now in middle schools and high schools. That's what has kept me busy for most of the last four years.
2: And your background is in sociology. That's what your master's degree is. Is this a scientific project that you're doing or something else?
3: This work really comes out of my life as a Quaker. I was attending the meetings of the United Nations Permanent Forum on Indigenous Peoples, as the director of a nonprofit organization called Global Response, we organized international campaigns at the request of indigenous communities from all around the world who were dealing with environmental problems or challenges or invasions. When corporations, primarily mining companies and oil companies, invaded indigenous lands, indigenous people did everything in their power to protect their lands and to defend their rights But when they felt that they needed international backing in those efforts, they could call on us and we would organize international campaigns in support of their efforts to defend their rights and protect their lands. So I was attending the United Nations Permanent Forum on Indigenous Peoples meetings. And that was where indigenous people from all over the world gathered to bring to the attention of the United Nations this doctrine of discovery as sort of the root cause of what they were experiencing as a result of colonization. They specifically asked the churches to look into this history because this was a combined effort of monarchs and popes and other church leaders throughout the last centuries When they called on the churches to do this work of understanding this history, I heard that call with my Quaker ears and came back to my own Quaker meeting in Boulder, Colorado, and to a committee there that is the Indigenous Peoples Concerns Committee that has been meeting for a few decades. We together started a study group looking into what we could learn about the Doctrine of Discovery, and then asked ourselves how we could take that information in an accessible way and bring it to all of the members of our Quaker meeting, then farther afield into the larger Quaker world and into other denominations as well. So that is how these workshops Began. I did the research to create the workshops, and we began this as an invitation to congregations to consider writing what Quakers call minutes. Other denominations may call them declarations or statements public statements repudiating the doctrine of discovery, and that repudiation comes about as a result of careful study and acknowledgement of the harm that was done to Native people by the churches themselves and in collaboration with the government agents that carried out these policies. So this work for the last four years, of this work that I have been um, calling Toward Right Relationship with Native Peoples, I've been doing this under the care of the Boulder Friends Meeting and with the support of a wonderful group of Quakers who meet with me and help me pursue this as a spiritual task, as a ministry.
2: And so are they an anchoring committee or a clearness committee for you? What do they function as?
3: They call themselves the Spiritual Care Committee, and they are really, their role is to help me Discern through prayer and discernment processes that Quakers have developed over the centuries where we ask for guidance of the Spirit in carrying out this work. Previous to this, I had done work as a director of a nonprofit organization where you make your five-year strategic plans. And this work functions in a, in a different way. Quakers like to use the term way opening and we capitalize the word way it it may be sort of an odd phrase but when we are doing work that is spirit-led it does feel that there are ways that way opens toward opportunities that may not have been contemplated in a strategic planning process so in this regard the work is guided in a different way.
2: The phrase I particularly like is, way will open when I get out of my own way.
3: Yes.
2: (laughs) That's frequently the biggest impediment we're experiencing.
3: Well, and that's what's so helpful about having a group of very seasoned, experienced Quakers to meet with me regularly and help me in this process.
2: There's a bit more, Paula, that I want to capture of the historical picture that leads up to the Native American boarding schools and and that effort. Before that, there were already a couple centuries of interactions between the Native peoples and the people coming from Europe and then other continents at that time. So what was happening between Native peoples and the invaders before The boarding schools started. How did they deal with one another?
3: Well, in the colonies, the different immigrant groups interacted with the indigenous people who were there in very many different ways. And there was certainly some cooperation, and then there was increasing and increasing and increasing expansion of the colonies. Then that produced wars, of course, there was also disease that native peoples were not had no immunity to, and so enormous numbers, millions of native people died of infectious diseases in the early days of the colonies. Their strength was greatly diminished by the rampages of these diseases. Then the struggles that we all know about, the wars that broke out all over the continent, starting with the Spanish conquistadores coming up from Mexico and the British coming in from the East Coast and the constant pressure on the Native communities. So that by the end of the Civil War, there was a strong movement among the white American society, to stop the wars, and Quakers and other Christian people were the ones who were really calling on the government post-Civil War to create a different kind of a policy, a policy that would permit peaceful coexistence. So the Quakers and other Christians prevailed upon President Grant to establish what he called the peace policy. That required Native peoples to give up their free life and live on reservations. And it required them to give up hunting and to become farming communities. It required that they send their children to school. And in exchange for that, the government promised them physical security, and annuity payments, and the delivery of commodities on a regular schedule. That's what was happening in the west, west of the Mississippi, starting with the presidency of Ulysses S. Grant. Quakers and other denominations were asked to nominate the people who would serve as Indian agents on all of the reservations west of the Mississippi. So President Grant appointed Quakers and Methodists and Presbyterians and Unitarians and Catholics to serve as the administrators of the Indian agencies and the reservations. And then each one of those denominations also were responsible for providing schooling for the children who were, according to the treaties, required to begin to go to school. So this was a policy of forced assimilation, that the government and the churches collaborated on. And the Indian agents who were nominated by the churches were paid by the federal government. The teachers were paid by the federal government, mostly out of the annuity payments that the Native tribes were receiving.
2: So we'll give you money, but we'll actually spend it on our folks, huh?
3: That's right. These are our payments to you, and this is how you have to spend them. So, yes, that was part of the coercion. This was definitely a coercive system. The missionaries who carried out these policies and established the schools thought that they were, by doing this, offering the benefits of European Christian civilization to a new generation, the new generation of Native people, and that this would be their path to survival and to productivity and full participation in the life of this new country that vision is entirely couched in notions of european christian superiority and white supremacy and that is definitely the air that these quaker and other christian teachers were breathing the water they were drinking this was the general attitude of white America at that time.
2: So this is happening post-Civil War, so sometime after 1865. Ulysses Grant is president, and I'm not sure what, maybe came in in 68, I think. And so these schools are, are set up toward or on the reservations. How many of them were set up? How were they distributed amongst these different groups? Were Quakers a major part of this, or I would figure Catholics would be number one?
3: During the Ulysses S. Grant administration, which was 1869 to 1877, there were 73 Indian agencies that were managed by the churches, and 16 of them were managed by Quakers and all of the others were managed by other denominations. So Quakers, I think, played a role that was greater than their numbers would have indicated. They were definitely proponents of this policy, and proponents of education in general. They had been creating their own schools for Quaker children, for recently freed slaves in the South, They were experienced in education, and they were very eager to offer what they saw as its benefits to Native American children. So the blind spots that they clearly had were that they were unable to see the value of the Native cultures themselves. They were unable to see what they were taking away from the children in the process of quote, giving them, offering them the benefits of their own idea of how to live. They very systematically took away the children's clothing, cut their hair. They even took away their names. They took away their language. They gave them English names. One of the Quaker Indian agent's comments that the surnames Among the Iowa people where Quakers had served as teachers for several decades, the surnames among the Iowa people were the same as the surnames in a Quaker meeting house in Philadelphia. In other words, the Quaker teachers had been giving the children common Quaker names. So when you start to think about what that meant to the children, you realize the intention was, to utterly alter their identity, remove their indigenous identity. The Quaker schools had, well, they, they varied in their enrollments quite a bit. Some of them averaged 10 or 15 students. Some of them averaged closer to 90 or 100 students, and some a few more than that. The schools that the Quakers ran were mostly boarding schools, and they were called manual labor boarding schools or industrial boarding schools. The Quakers preferred these boarding schools because their intention was to keep the children under their influence and prevent them from spending time in their homes where they feared that they would, quote, lose the instruction that they had during the day and their parents would influence them to maintain their indigenous identity. The schools required the boys to do farming, which previous to the reservation system had been done in most communities. Farming had been done by the women. So the boys were required to do what was considered women's work, and the girls were required to come in from their gardening and gathering activities and learn how to do sewing and household work So both the boys and the girls were required to alter the gender roles of their societies. This was a painful process. The boys particularly ran away frequently from the schools because they just (laughs) didn't want to be doing the kind of work that the teachers were requiring of them. Children were brought into the schools as early as five years old, and six years old and most of the schools went up through fourth fifth sixth grades few of them went beyond that and in some cases the quaker teachers would send bright children to schools in the east to further their education i wanted to share a quote from a report that was given in 1870 by a visiting delegation from Ohio and Genesee Yearly Meeting, which explains the Quaker attitude toward the boarding schools. This is the quote. It is the opinion of all the Quaker agents that the industrial school is the best adapted to the wants of the Indians. They will then be removed from the contaminating influences of the home circle, where they lose at night the good impressions they have received during the day.
2: That's pretty nice, isn't it? By today's Mm -hmm. standards, that's pretty rude.
3: Yeah, well, it's pretty clear what their intentions were. There's another quote. A Quaker agent among the Santee Sioux, his name is Joseph Webster, said, the whole character of the Indian must be changed. And this was clearly the intention of the teachers in the Quaker Indian schools. I'll read a quotation from a woman named Zikala Sa. She was a Lakota child, who entered a Quaker Indian boarding school at the age of eight. This is her recollection of one of her first days in that school. I remember being dragged out, though I resisted by kicking and scratching wildly. In spite of myself, I was carried downstairs and tied fast in a chair. I cried aloud, shaking my head all the while until I felt the cold blades of the scissors against my neck and heard them gnaw off one of my thick braids. Then I lost my spirit. Our mothers had taught us that only unskilled warriors who were captured had their hair shingled by the enemy. Among our people, short hair was worn by mourners and shingled hair by cowards. I moaned for my mother, but no one came to comfort me. For now, I was only one of many little animals driven by a herder.
2: Oh, wow. And that was written about how long ago?
3: That was written in 1900 and published in The Atlantic Monthly.
2: And so you've done some of this research gathering this. I mean, you are a sociologist, and I do want to remind our listeners that you're listening to a conversation with Paula Palmer. She's from Boulder, Colorado. She's part of what's called the Toward Right Relationship with Native Peoples Project, which is a subset of the Indigenous People Concerns Committee in the Quaker Meeting in Boulder. She is here today for Spirit in Action, which is a Northern Spirit Radio production. On the web, you'll find us at northernspiritradio.org org, And on that site, you'll find more than 11 years of our programs for free listening and download. You'll find links and information about our guests. So when you want to find Paula Palmer, you can find a link via BoulderFriendsMeeting.org, And there's a subfolder that you'll be looking in. The link is on NorthernSpiritRadio.org. There's also a place to post comments. Help make our conversation two-way by posting your comment and sharing your wisdom when you visit. There's also a place to donate, and that is how this full-time work is supported. It's not by government, it's not by corporations, it's because you, the listeners, believe in it. So please donate when you come, but even more important, I would say, is to support your local community radio station. Local media is so important in terms of getting out the news and the music that is being birthed locally, and so... Please start by supporting your local community radio station. Again, Paula Palmer here. And we're talking about the schools that were set up in the late 1800s for Native people. It was an attempt to assimilate them and to bring them over to the European way of view, and uh, typically called Christian point of view, which a number of us probably have deep questions about. And Paula is part of doing some deep self-examination. Quakers participated in this project as well as a number of other denominations, and this self-examination is... Is what we're about. To have a brighter way into the future, we have to, as they say in 12-step, you have to do a, a in-depth assessment, a self-examination, in, in order to make your steps forward into the future. So, Paula, you were speaking before I interrupted.
3: <laughs> well, I wanted to tell you really why I began doing this research into the role that Quakers played during the era of the Indian boarding schools. I had been talking about the workshops that we are offering across the country, and one of the Native American facilitators of those workshops is Gerilyn Dakota. She is a Ojibwe Cree woman whose tribe is the Turtle Mountain Band of Chippewa in North Dakota. We have been working together for three and a half years now. And Gerilyn, during that time, became the chair of the board of the National Native American Boarding School Healing Coalition. This is a coalition of Native American organizations that is calling for a truth and reconciliation process to really look into what happened here during the era of the Indian boarding schools and its ongoing impacts and the woundedness that is still very much affecting Native people in families and communities around the country. So because of my close association with Gerilyn, I learned that one of the things that the Boarding School Healing Coalition is asking is for the churches to do research into our own histories with the boarding schools. They're really asking all of the denominations to conduct research into our own roles during the era of the boarding schools, and then, as you said, reflect on what we learn about this period of history and ask ourselves, who are we today? Knowing what we know now about the consequences for Indian people, knowing now what we know about the harm that was done in the forced assimilation of Native children by means of the Indian boarding schools, what are we going to do today? how can we now contribute toward healing processes in Native communities? There are ways that the churches can be supportive and the Boarding School Healing Coalition is asking all of the churches to take stock now of our responsibility, the responsibility that we have once we know our history and know the harm that was done. Hearing this from Gerilyn and others in the Boarding School Healing Coalition, I said, well, I can begin that process for Quakers. I can begin to look into this history for my own denomination. So I submitted proposals for some research grants, and I was awarded a Pendle Hill Cadbury Scholarship last year and also a Moore Scholarship from Swarthmore College. And those two scholarships, in addition to small grants from the Native American Rights Fund and also a research grant from the Louisville, excuse me, I say Louisville because I live in a little town called <laughs> Louisville. They say Louisville, <laughs> the Louisville Institute in uh, Louisville, Kentucky. So with that support, I was able to spend four months in the libraries, the Quaker history libraries at Swarthmore and Haverford Colleges. And that's where the, the, the Quaker records are, the minutes of many thousands of Quaker meetings and committees and the very people who were making the decisions in the 1800s to collaborate with the federal government under President Grant. All of that correspondence and decision-making process is available for researchers to see firsthand in these libraries. Also, the journals and letters from many of the Quaker teachers were there in those libraries. I was able to hold some of those letters in my hands. So now I am in the process of bringing what I've learned in, through that research, bringing this to Quakers and asking Quakers across the country to think about this, think about what this means for us and think about what opportunities we may have today to build right relationship through dialogue with Native communities. This is what I'm about right now, and at the same time, the Boarding School Healing Coalition is asking all of the other denominations to undertake this kind of research and similar processes of reflection and discernment about who we are going to be today.
2: Is there parallel work being done in other denominations, or are Quakers just the first out of the door?
3: Well, the coalition is not aware of any individual or church body that has officially said that they are undertaking this research. So there may be researchers out there who have done or are doing similar work, And if they are hearing this broadcast, it would be great if they got in touch with the National Native American Boarding School Healing Coalition because that coalition is hoping to serve as sort of an umbrella organization to gather this research and to use it as the foundation for a truth and reconciliation process, realizing that the first step in truth and reconciliation is truth-telling, and that's the first way that we can contribute toward a truth and reconciliation process is by bringing forward the truth of our role in the boarding school era.
2: There must be some kind of a website or contact information we could provide to get a hold of that group?
3: Yes, their website is BoardingSchoolHealing.org.
2: Okay, boarding org. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's good that Quakers are doing this, but there's a lot of other denominations participated in this. We need to do some self-examination, all of us. And so BoardingSchoolHealing.org, and I'll have a link on NorthernSpiritRadio.org. The more people who are doing this, the better the chances that we're actually going to have a better outcome for our entire society. So you've only given us a tiny glimpse, Paula, of the injustices, the oppressiveness, the downside of these schools. One thing that is not completely clear to me, what coercion or requirement were these kids just, did they go into the villages and grab them, or how were they forced into these schools?
3: Well, in the case of the Quaker-managed Indian agencies, There were a number of agents who threatened to withhold the rations of families that were not enrolling their children in school. So that's pretty direct coercion.
2: And if the children decided to leave the school, they run away. I understand it did happen a number of times. What would they do then?
3: I don't know exactly what was done in terms of punishment. There is very little recorded about whatever punishment was awaiting children who ran away, so I can't really speak to that. But there was a teacher in the Kansas school, Malin Stubbs was his name, who said that he spent more time chasing after boys who were running away from their labors than he did in the classroom teaching them. So we do get a sense that children resisted by running away. There is also some evidence that in some schools children set fire to the building as either a protest or a a desire to escape.
2: You've got a whole lot of research that you've done. Could you give us more of a flavor of both the attitudes and the outcomes that were a result of these boarding schools?
3: The overwhelming concern of the Quaker teachers was that they were not having the influence on the children that they wanted to have. Their ties to their family were very strong, and the teachers... Often complained that, as soon as the children went back to their families after their years in the school were finished that they went right back into the traditional ways of their people and Quaker teachers felt quite discouraged for the most part about the effectiveness of their program of assimilation this I think from our point of view today is a testament to the strength and resilience of indigenous people, and the pride of identity that they felt and feel. And the fact that there are still some 600 indigenous peoples today who have distinct cultures and speak as many as 150 native languages around this country is a testament to the pride that Native people take in their own traditions and the value of those traditions. So the Quakers did fail in their attempt to alter completely the Native culture and assimilate children into a foreign culture. That project ultimately did fail, and we are grateful that it did.
2: Was the work that the Quakers were doing with these schools, was it kind of traditional missionary work, trying to recruit them into the religion? I think that a lot of Native peoples took up Catholic ways, and so maybe the Catholics are just better at recruiting than Quakers, and maybe Quakers weren't even trying to?
3: Well, from the beginning, the language of the federal documents and the church documents around this period, the language is Christianized and civilized. And the goal of both the government and the Quaker schools and the other missionary schools, the twin goals were to Christianize and civilize. These words go together all the time, and so they were, that was clearly the project of both the government and the churches. Quakers were less proselytizing than the other Christian denominations. In fact, Thomas Hamm, who is a Quaker historian at Earlham College, says that Quakers felt that the project of civilizing needed to be conducted first before Native people were likely to turn toward Christianity. So the Quakers set out to civilize first, and that included teaching in English and requiring the children to learn beginning in English immersion. The other denominations, many of them had their main goal and their first priority to be to save souls, and so they learned the native people's languages and translated the Bible into those native languages, and in many of their schools, they taught first in the native people's languages in order to introduce the Christian concepts and baptize people and save souls. So that was one of the distinguishing features of Quaker education, which must have been, in fact, harsher for many of the children coming into an English immersion situation, which is what the Quakers preferred.
2: I think we have at least a portion of the view of what was going on at that time in the 1800s, second half of that century, What were the consequences? How did this play out, and and what did it do for the society as a whole and for the indigenous peoples in particular?
3: Native people generally say that the boarding schools had, there were mixed results of the boarding schools. Here it's important to remember that the boarding school era started in the early 1800s, but it didn't end until the 1970s. The government policy didn't really change until the 1970s when the Indian Education Bill was passed, and self-determination became the founding philosophy. So we're talking about many generations of Native people who went through this boarding school process, and we're talking about an evolution from these small reservation-based schools like the ones that were run by the Quakers. Those quickly gave way to the large government boarding schools that were run on a military model like Carlisle in Pennsylvania, where there were many hundreds of Native children brought from Alaska and New Mexico and Montana and New York, children from all over the place who arrived at a this military base and knew no one else there and there was no one with whom they could speak their own language And their parents may not have even known where they were. There are children who are buried at Carlisle with gravestones that say unknown. So children actually arrived at Carlisle without anyone knowing who they even were. And these children, if they died, then are buried as unknown. It's sort of almost just too painful to think about this transporting children all over the country and dropping them in a military establishment that cruel just terribly cruel treatment of native children it was going on for several generations and native people today there are na- native people today who themselves went to boarding schools or whose parents went to boarding schools so this is not an ancient history. This is a very live history. This era is still very close to Native families. The cumulative effect of so many generations being subjected to forced assimilation in institutions that were heartless, the cumulative effects of that are seen in despair and depression and suicide and Alienation and alcoholism and illnesses like diabetes, tuberculosis, that are still very prevalent in Native communities. And Native people now are understanding through the testimony of generations of people in their families and also from scientific studies that trauma, like the trauma experienced in these boarding schools that trauma can be passed from generation to generation genetically and of course socially so some of the pain and grief and violence and dysfunction that exists in some Native communities today can really be traced very directly to this treatment that Native people received Native children received in in the boarding schools where they were wrenched from their families and brought up in institutions and then released into the wide world, really no longer able to re-assimilate into their indigenous communities, nor able to fully become something that they were just not. They They were not ever quite Europeans. And so that utter alienation is something that is the legacy of the boarding schools that is very much alive, very much visible in Native communities today.
2: I know that we're just scratching the surface on this. And I do want people to realize that there's a more extensive presentation you can find from Paula Palmer. There's a video, and I think there's a new one going to be up very shortly, on the boulderfriendsmeeting.org website. You'll find a link there to the work of the Indigenous People Concerns Committee and the Toward Right Relationship with Native Peoples Project. You'll find a video with a more extensive presentation by Paula Palmer and others about the researches, the results, and the insights that we can get from looking back on what happened back then. The question that many people will have, I'm I'm sure there's a lot of people who are saying, why do we want to air our dirty underwear? Anybody who's done real healing work knows that you air dirty underwear so you can get it clean until you recognize that it was dirty. You carry that wound and that dysfunction forward into the future. But the question, looking back, for many of us, and I certainly have the question, I don't know if I mentioned to you, Paula, I lived two years in West Africa. I was in the Peace Corps, and I had the experience of wondering if the physics that I was teaching and the math I was teaching them in the village where I lived, if this was going to help them or hurt them in terms of their way forward. It's it's certainly a question. How much damage am I doing right today? going forward. So, my question really is what better could have been done? What with the wisdom of hindsight, which of course won't necessarily take into account the realities of the time, what better could have been done by Quakers and others if not boarding schools or if boarding schools how could it have been done better? What could have been done?
3: Well, there was certainly uh, value in teaching Native people to speak English. It was in their interest to learn English, and many of the parents did voluntarily send their children to school understanding that they needed to understand English in order to be able to sit at the negotiating tables and write letters of appeal when the annuities didn't come. And in order to defend themselves, they needed to be able to function in English. But, you know, the the problem was not teaching English or geography or math. The problem was the attitude that there is a natural superiority of one way of life over another, that there was no room in the America that white Christians were imagining. There was no room there for indigenous cultures to exist and thrive side-by-side with Italian culture and German culture and um, Irish culture or, you know, whatever, there there was no understanding of the possibility of plurality or of equality or of diversity of cultures. And so if education had been offered on an equal playing field and if Quakers had been as eager to learn Lakota or Navajo, or Hopi, as they were to teach English. There's nothing wrong in teaching English (laughs) by itself. It's the attitudes that, that that attitude of superiority that was infused in the teaching, and that was really, it was really the goal of the teaching was to erase, eradicate, annihilate entire cultures, entire ways of life. And, you know, it makes me very sad to think of all that was lost, all of the opportunities of learning that were lost, opportunities of learning. If Europeans had arrived with their eyes open to learning how native people lived on this land, we might not have destroyed the prairie if, if we had learned about peacemaking from the Haudenosaunee people. If we had learned about the role of clan mothers in decision-making processes, we might have implemented equality of women a lot sooner than we did. But people from Europe didn't arrive looking to see what they could learn from the people that they encountered on this continent. And so we lost that opportunity, and we're reaping some of the bitter fruit of that hubris And blindness now. The wonderful thing is that we still have opportunities now to learn from the Native people whose resilience has kept them strong up until this day. It's not over. Native people are still here. We still have an opportunity in our own lifetime to enter into dialogue on a completely equal footing and step out of our privilege and out of our sense of superiority and embrace some humility or, as the Buddhists say, beginner's mind. Begin again to see what, how we all can benefit from relating to each other as human beings and learning from each other and growing together toward what we like to call right relationship
2: And folks, we have to end our visit here with Paula Palmer. Again, she's ex-director of Global Response, uh, Campaigns for Indigenous People. She's been director of Toward Right Relationship with Native Peoples Project, which is a subgroup of the Indigenous People Concerns Committee in Boulder Friends Meeting. Their website, boulderfriendsmeeting.org, you can find a video there that does a more extensive job of sharing some of the fruits of of her research and the self-examination that Quakers have to go through just as every other group really should go through in terms of our attitudes towards indigenous people, the Native Americans that we sometimes call Indians. Paula's masters is in sociology, and she's got five books of oral history of Afro-Caribbean and bri bri indigenous people. There's lots of resources. You want to follow up with Paula Palmer about Paula, it's wonderful work you've been sharing. I was so glad to catch you at the Friends General Conference this past July and start to know some of what you're about and what you have to share. There's so much more. I'm sorry I can't share more in this hour. Again, Paula, thanks for doing the work, extended work. I mean, this is decades of work that you're doing in this direction to get Quakers and the rest of society forward toward right relationship. Thank you for joining me for Spirit in Action.
3: Thank you, Mark.
2: I want to thank Andrew Jansen for production and assistance with today's broadcast,
0: and we'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action.